Um, we are in the final sermon on our series with Esther. Very excited to complete the series, turn the chapter. The weather even turned a little bit this week, and so there's a transition into the deeper fall. November is my favorite month, if you want to know, so just FYI. Um, these, this is uh, the, I'm going to read the section in chapter 9 that we read last week, which is kind of a summary of the flip and great reversal in the book of Esther. And then I'm going to read the final chapter, which is just three verses, chapter 10. And my hope is to kind of summarize what we've been talking about for the entire series, mainly thinking about God's faithful presence to us. Um, so that's one of our themes uh, in this church, and one of the things that we always want to emphasize. And so this is God's word to you today. This is from Esther 9, verses 20 through 23, and then we'll read 10, 1 through 3. It says this, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who are in the provinces of King Xerxes, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Then skip down to uh, chapter 10. King Xerxes imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people." So uh, it's our practice here to spend some moments in silence before we talk about the text. And as always, we, what we're doing in that moment of silence is asking God together to, to be present with us in some particular way. And so what, one of the things I would ask for you to be thinking about as we pray is that God would reveal to you your calling or your place in life and how in particular he wants you to image him in your place, in your sphere. Um, and so I hope to uh, help us gain some clarity on that from this text this morning. Okay, so let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, you are always loving and always in community in and of yourself. And from that love and community, you extended that into this creation, and that's where we are. Um, and at our best, Lord, we are an extension of that gospel love that's existed before the creation of the world. And you've placed us in particular eras, in particular cities, in particular homes, in particular bodies, and you want us to image you. Lord, that's your desire. And the best way that we can image you is to know that you love us 
and that we can't get away from your love and that nothing can snatch us away from your hand. And Lord, so, so much of our lives uh, threatens us to disbelieve that great truth. And so I ask that you would peel back um, the distraction, peel back the fears, and speak peace um, to our hearts right now. By the Spirit, in Christ's name, amen. Um, <clears throat> I really love this series, and I really loved how you guys have interacted with uh, the Scripture in this particular season of our church, and so I'm proud of you. Way to go. Um, the whole series has been a, a focus on God being faithfully present, yet hidden in a secular culture called Persia. That's what the book of Esther is about. And this, this culture in Persia not only didn't believe in God, but they sought to annihilate those who did believe in God. And uh, the person of Haman is the, the one that was violent towards those who believed in God and God's presence. However, in the midst of that violence, we also saw that Esther and Mordecai, they didn't return to Jerusalem, which is where the temple was, which is where God's presence was said to have been, for whatever reason, and they stayed in this anti-religious environment where at the very least, Esther and Mordecai were complicit in actions that were very against the law of God. And yet, meaning uh, she married a pagan uh, person, now that it was out of her control, but at, at the very least, uh, they were involved in things that we would say, that isn't biblical, and yet God still used them. God still used them in ways that literally kept the line of Jesus alive. And Esther is about God governing all that comes to pass in the normal course of human activity. So there are no miracles in Esther. God's name is not even mentioned in Esther. And what we see uh, over and over and over again is that God is faithfully present to you so that he can be faithfully present through you by faith. That's how this book ends, that God is faithfully present to you so that he can be faithfully present through you, and that requires faith, that requires believing that he's there. Now, where do you see that in the book of Esther? Now, I want to give sort of like an overview of what all we've learned in the book of Esther in this sermon to close it up. But Esther was a queen, and she was in a very high secular position. And I want you to hear me clearly now. God wanted her there, okay? She was in a very high secular position, and God wanted her there. And, and when the story, the whole story changes in chapter 4, when she believes that God could work through her, that God placed her in that position for such a time as this. That's what Mordecai says in chapter 4. Maybe God has placed you in this position for such a time as this. Um, I've used this example before, but this has always stuck with me at the commencement speech of my seminary. When my seminary came into existence, there was a guy named Leo Schuster. He's a very gifted man. Um, he gave the commencement speech to kind of bring our seminary into existence. And he said, you know, when I, was, when I was in seminary, I had a professor that said, now remember, Leo, remember how a turtle gets to be on top of a fence post. 
And he, and he said, Leo, uh, all that you've gotten to in this, at this point in your life uh, has been a gift. You've been placed where you are. And I want you to begin to think about what is your fence post? Where, where has God placed you? I was talking with a friend of mine. She was in a higher uh, position in a secular company. And I was asking her, I was like, hey, what's the difference between secular leadership and church leadership? And Because uh, she's familiar with both realms. And she said, oftentimes in, se- in the secular sphere, decisions that are made for the organization can seem cruel because there is no experience of grace and forgiveness like there is in the church. Now, I don't have to convince you guys that uh, the church can be a graceless place. I'm not going to argue against that. But that's the church at its worst. The church at its best, and what we have to offer the world, is grace. It It should reek of grace. I was walking into a bookstore near my home with my daughter the other week, and she walked in, and she sniffed. She's like, smells like church in here. <laughs> and it did, you know, like it just had that smell, you know. Um, well, God's people are, are supposed to smell, I know this sounds crazy, it's supposed to smell like him, the aroma of Christ. And Jesus' kingdom, this is how you know you're kind of catching a, wh- a whiff of Jesus. Uh, in Jesus' kingdom, there is no room for cynicism. Jesus is all for conflict when it needs to happen. He confronts hypocrites. He confronts sinners. But one thing he isn't about his creation is cynical. And the opposite of cynicism is participation. To get involved in what God is doing in the world and in your life and in the life of the relationships that you find yourself in, wherever your fence post is, he's at work. And my question for you and myself always is, do we believe that that's possible? Do we believe that he's intricately involved? The role of the church for most of its members is to equip you, the laity, the congregation, is to equip you to be God's image in your calling in the world. And that's when the church has its most effective change on society for the better when we see our vocations in the public sphere as our main love and ministry to the world. That calling from God is rooted in the belief that God is faithfully present to you so that he can be faithfully present through you in the midst of the world. And, you know, Abraham Kuyper was was very fond of saying, there is not one square inch where Jesus doesn't say, that's mine. And if you believe that, then that means that God can be present in the midst of the the worst evil and the worst injustice and the worst dysfunction. If the book of Esther has taught us anything, it has taught us that an overly sexualized, indulgent, and violent culture, in a culture like that, two very powerless people who believe in God can totally change the course of history. That can happen. It has taught us also, and I get really excited about this, even though this is a little heated topic in our culture today, but we learned this in uh, the book of Ruth a couple of months ago. There is a way, y'all, that men and women 
can work together to build safety for human lives as opposed to dispensing more fear and insubordination into the world. And you see that perfectly in Mordecai and Esther. That Mordecai, if you think about what he did, he caught, she was essentially his daughter slash cousin slash niece. Uh, he said, Esther, you might have to die. And you need to be bold enough to risk your life to do it. And emboldened by that challenge, Esther ended up saving Mordecai's life so that he could save the Jews in Persia. And what you're seeing in that interplay is the ruling and subduing of creation itself together as man and woman. And one of the beautiful things that the scriptures continue to show us, it teaches us this sort of ancient allegiance that men and women once had before sin came into the world and we started hurting each other, that we existed as a picture of God together like a mirror, wherein men and women exist to draw the best out of each other and we are mutually dependent upon one another. And when we align together, we, we bring blessing and protection and wholeness back into the world that people see the very body of Christ. They see Jesus Christ when we rule and subdue creation together. That's exactly what Esther and Mordecai show us. That's what the last verses in Esther are saying, that Mordecai, he brought goodness and peace back into the Persian Empire. So instead of the Persians plundering the Jews, this was the original plan by Haman. He's like, let's, let's kill all the Jewish people and steal their money, O King Xerxes, to replenish your war account that's depleted because you got whooped by Greece. That's what was happening. And Mordecai steps into that place of stopping that terrible law because he called Esther to protect him. And they're, they're mutually dependent on one another. And so he brings all of these 127 provinces that were in the Persian Empire back together again. And he could not have done that without Esther. And what God wants us to do as human beings is that he wants us to value others more than the self. He wants us to value others more than the self. What we've seen in Haman is that Haman valued himself at the expense of others. Haman eventually, what, what happens when you do that in individuals and cultures is that you eventually fall into your own trap. That's why the Apostle Paul tells us, very important for us, especially today, the Apostle Paul tells us that we actually don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We're not wrestling against physical enemies. Our deepest conflict is not with our physical relationships but our deepest conflict is in, in nature spiritual. And you see it perfectly in Haman. Haman was his own worst enemy because he didn't take what his heart most deeply longed for to God. And he looked for it in what he could attain. And when you do that, other people get in the way. And you gotta, you got to get rid of them. Nothing was a gift to Haman. And he was trying to climb up on that fence post himself. 
and he was suffering. This is the, the really sad part about when you do that, when you forget God and you forget that you're meant to serve other people, your suffering becomes meaningless. It goes into the nothingness of hell because he would not take his deepest longings to God. And so here's the question for all of us as we sort of begin to wrap up, and I want to make this personal as we wrap up the book of Esther. If, I, I know this is a hard thing to actually get down to the root of, but if you had to say, what is it that you truly want? What would that be? Like at the very base of the guttural soul, the heart level, and the scriptures say over and over and over and over again, that's where the deeper war is. That the great war in the cosmos is for the human heart. Economists will tell you, I'm sure many of you have read this, that the most valuable thing in the world right now, it's not gold, it's not silver, it's not Bitcoin, it's the attention span of human beings right now. Marketers will tell you if you can maintain the attention span of people, then that's where the power and the money are. And what Jesus says in his kingdom, the most valuable thing in his economy is your heart. And that's the great question, not just of Esther, but of the Bible. Can God win the hearts of humans? I know what we're supposed to say. Well, yeah, 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 he, he can win, but, but for real, you think he can? And what Jesus really shows us is what to believe about God, what to believe about him from the heart level. That at the heart level, what Jesus clearly shows us is it's a question. It's like, did you believe that God loved you or not? And that question will be tested in your life, especially in your lot, in your fence post, especially in the places where you suffered. And in that suffering, you'll know that you have the gospel or that it has you when you find your faith in Christ strengthened more and deepened more when you experience a loss in any way. And the roots going down into the, the love of God more the more that your life unravels on a physical level. And this is the most bizarre thing. If you read and reread and reread John 11, it's bizarre. Um, I, so personally, I'm, I, I struggle with the fear of death. And so every part of the scripture that talks about resurrection, I'm just, I can't, I can't imagine a better scenario than where the soul and body of people that I've loved will get reunited and I have them back. And if you read John 11, when, he raises, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, that the resurrection is not the point. He says it clearly that I am raising Lazarus from the, from the dead so that you would believe in me. That's, that's bizarre. Which must mean that at the, at the very heart of what we think we want, whether it's world peace or beauty or resurrection or Purim or Sabbath or goodness, that's the question, does God have my heart? Does he? Now, if you're like, well, how would I know if he had my heart? Well, have you ever gotten over what Jesus has done for you, specifically in your life? 
And even if you have grown bored with him, that's why he came. I love John Newton because later on in his ministry, deep into his, his life, he would, write, he would write letters to people. And it's like super, super hum, like humble and revealing about what's going on in his heart. He says, every morning I wake up, what I find is that there's new mercies from God and new ingratitude in me. And he said, scarcely could two persons be less alike than I am from myself sometimes. Esther was not a bastion of faith. In chapter 4, you remember that great statement that Mordecai made to Esther when she was scared to move into her calling? And we all are scared to move into our calling at times. But do you remember what he said to her? He said, Esther, if you keep silent and refuse to move into your place as queen and stand up for the Jews, deliverance is going to come from another place. What could that mean except that she was struggling, like we all do, to believe? To believe that it matters, to believe that everything isn't just pointless, to believe that her life actually has value, to believe that she, she actually is the very glory of God in her present moment. And the deepest, I, I have really gleaned this from y'all, you know, like there's a, there's a place in Philippians where it says that the job of the church is to present one another blameless for the day of Christ. Um, I, I think that you guys have done that for me in how you've suffered. And here's what I've learned. I, don't, I do not think that at the deepest core level, we just want the pain to go away. I don't think that that's what we most need. I think what we most need is for our suffering to be consecrated and mended. That it means something. That your fence post actually has a very intricate and detailed plan that God is working out. And the deepest part of that plan is the deepest part of the pain. That's where true joy is. The joy that's earned by blood. And that's what, you know, this is the the senselessness of evil. The senselessness of of death. Um, That's what pure means. The the name pure means dice. Purim. And what Haman used to curse God's people. What evil intended, God turned into the opposite. And the reason why is because he wants to make a mockery of evil. He wants to make a mockery of your disbelief. He wants it to go back into the nothingness. And so as we close, uh, what, what is it that represents your downfall or your lot? What is the fence post that you don't want right now? And God intends, this is what Esther is about, God intends to make that the deepest source of faith, which will lead to your calling. So, for example, I was given permission to use this. I have a friend of mine who struggles with um, body image issues. He's a large man, and he had bariatric surgery. And he says that um, in, the, in the past, he, he was ashamed, in social settings, he was ashamed of how he looked. And through other people and through working through that shame... People would tell him, like, I, uh, 
I, I really like your body. Because when I'm around you, I, I, feel, I feel protected. I feel like you're, like you're hovering over me and protecting me from, from harm. And my buddy, um, he said, this is a pastor friend, he said, you know, I, I really began to change the way that I walked into a space and began to see my body as God's presence. And uh, one of his daughter's friends died on, on a soccer team, and he said he, he went into that space. There was no chaplain, there was no pastor. He's like, in the past, I would have held back. But this time, I was, I was listening to other voices, not the voice of shame, and I was saying, use your body for comfort. Use your body for strength. And he, he said he went up there and he, he held the coaches for a long time. And he would hug the players. And what was going on is that he was stepping into the glory of how God made the brother. And what God wanted to do with his very body. And what, what was happening, you guys, that he, he began to settle into his fence post. He began to settle into his lot in life. And he saw it not as a curse, but as a gift. That's what Jesus is about. That he lets us see, like, oh my gosh, I thought where there was only shame, or that there was only curse, like, that's the good stuff that I now get to give to people. And when that happens, you give the gospel to the world by faith. And this can happen, in, of course, in individualized, but when that happens on a communal level, it's, it's really powerful. And you may, be, you may be right now like, my family is so jacked. I have so much pain in my family. The lot of my family, the fence posts of my family feel so very hopeless. And what the church is called to do is to step in the midst of that and say, the gospel actually allows me to see something quite different than what you're concluding. The gospel allows me to see that God's at work in this what you, what you think is hopeless is not. That there can be wholeness where there was once emptiness. And I, I really do think that's where the gospel starts on Genesis 1, verse 1, where who was over the face of the deep? This the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters, like a mother bird hovering over her, her little babies. That's God. Always present, always with you. And with that, he wants you to be his presence to others. But that's got to start with the fact that your heart most deeply wants him, and he would love to give it to you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he or she who gets you gets a good thing? Because of Jesus Christ blessing you and turning your shame into glory. That's what Esther is about. He changes our sorrow into gladness and our mourning into a holiday. So let's pray and uh, confess and we'll come to this table. Father, we thank you for um, your word, your revelation in each era of human history um, it seems so uh, distant for us to be thinking about the Persian kingdom, 
500 years before Jesus came on the scene, but Lord, uh, you were there, just like you're here with us, always working, always present, always behind the scenes, hidden, working your magic, Lord, the magic of the gospel, the mystery hidden for ages that Paul says has now been revealed in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we know and we trust that you won't let evil win, whether that's evil inside us or outside of us, that you're working it into your master plan. We don't understand that. We don't understand how that all works together. But that is clearly what we see in Jesus Christ, where human decisions and your will collide and exploding in the world is the gospel, your kingdom. And so help us to trust that. Help us to believe in him. In Christ's name, amen.